Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, A24 presents The Farewell Comes at Night. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I am not going to say anything funny, because I don't think either of these movies are uh, very funny. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and everything seems totally natural. And then, oh, there's black gunk coming out of my mouth. Oh, no. Oh, oh, a dream sequence. Oh, I hope that doesn't happen another like five or six times is the only thing about my character. Whew. Oh, boy. Well, you got to stop with that chewing tobacco. <laughs> I know. I'm, s- I'm such a big <laughs> tobacco <laughs> chewer over yeah. here. That's what I had to lead out of every episode, everybody. Me mm-hmm. spitting up chalk. And it's a lot, too. These the recordings are two hours and a half hour. It's just me chewing chalk. Spitting out your wintergreen skull. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. But welcome, everybody, to the Double Edge Double Bill, where every week, if you're new, uh, Adam and I, uh, at the end of a previous episode, pick a good and a bad movie to cover uh, for the next episode. So we did that with our two picks uh, for this evening, which uh, the topic is A24, because uh, Alex Garland's new movie, Men, is coming out, which we're recording this when the initial reviews have come out. And the most interesting things I've heard is that it's Alex Garland's mother. Oh, boy. Basically, like the Darren Aronofsky movie. Oh so boy. I'm very curious to see exactly what that ends up being. Uh, but, Adam, this is interesting because this is us repeating a topic. Because we have covered A24 previously, for the show at least. Uh-huh. Like, we've done, some of the other movies we've done have been like Moonlight, The Florida Project, Ex Machina, and then A Ghost Story... And Swiss Army Man were the two movies we covered in our previous A24 episode, though, unfortunately, that's one of the few you were not able to be on. We had our guest Ryan Quarterman uh, talk with me about those two movies. Uh, so, Adam, I'm going to give you the floor. Uh, talk about A24. What do you like about this little indie studio so much? They just give, you know, these up-and-coming or sort of really kind of strange off-the-grid filmmakers a chance to put something out there that they'll, you know, get in the theater for the most part. Uh, and, and it, I love that they sort of go across all genre. They have a lot of really good, you know, horror films, good sci-fi films, good romance, good comedy, good everything. There's no specific formula really to them. I mean, maybe that's not true. I, I, I guess when you know, if it's an A24 movie for the most part, um, not just because the logo in the beginning, there's a very clear kind of brand that they have with either the movies they make or the movies they distribute that they acquire. Yeah. So a, yeah. They have a certain aesthetic. That's failure. But but they're all over the map as far as what genre it is and what type of story is being told. And I, I just really love that they're one of the few studios that are out there still that are just putting out different type of content all the time. It's not just horror or it's not just action or it's not just it's everything like it's an all encompassing thing. And they give, you know, like we said, look at the chances they take, you know, uncut gems. Who would have ever thought that that would work? You would never suspect those five movies I mentioned we've covered on the show were made by the same studio. No, not at all. 
not at all. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think what's so interesting is that they've been able to keep up sort of like a brand while at the same time, like giving their directors and writers like creative freedom, allowing to do what they want with their movies and putting them out. I think the interesting thing is when they have sort of that aesthetic and they market it, it's often kind of like had some interesting, I think that's very crucial to one of the movies we're talking about today in terms of it was a movie that made a decent amount of money because of how A24 decided to market it. Though a lot of people were left a bit more dissatisfied uh, by it. We'll talk about that in a bit with that movie. But at the same time, with like, it's like you mentioned, they're a weird studio that is just willing to make daring choices to distribute some of these movies. Like, A Ghost Story is one of those movies I can still remember where, like, I loved it so much, but when I saw it in the theater, it wasn't a huge crowd. And there's a certain point in that movie where that very small crowd, most of which left, except for like me and the two friends I saw that movie with basically. So they can be divisive to a certain degree, but I think that makes them far more interesting. And nothing else has also allowed other studios to kind of try and piggyback on that while doing their own thing. Like neon is a great example of that, or Anna Perinina, some of these other studios that kind of have a similar low budget, um, distribution thing and but a24 is just the one that does it with the most interesting and more consistent than not quality there's only a handful of i would argue very bad a24 films yeah i'd say that that's very true i I, i'm I'm sort of hard pressed i mean there is definitely a couple it might be some misses but it's very rare that it's just a really lousy movie yes as uh we'll detail this evening where uh we had our picks that we did at the end of our uh, last episode, and we ended up with uh, between my two bad picks and got It Comes at Night, and then uh, your two good picks, and we ended up with The Farewell. Once again, two movies that have a similar sort of like fit into the A24 vibe, as it were, as the kids say, but uh, are also two incredibly different movies. What? I thought The Farewell was a sequel. I can't believe they brought the dog back. That was like the big <laughs> end game, like when it came through the portal. And it yeah. was like, wow, the dog came back. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. let's just get into that movie then. Let's get into It Comes at Night. I think that Will and I should be the only ones who go outside for a while. We don't know what made Stanley sick. We don't know anything. If you're lying to me, I will kill you. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So uh, It Comes at Night came out June 9th, 2017 from writer-director Trey Edward Schultz. And when I was referencing earlier sort of like the marketing that Day 24 puts into their movies, uh, this is, I think, the crown jewel example of what they do a lot with their horror films, because this is more on the horror side of things. Um, I can distinctly remember when that trailer came out, marketed as more of like a traditional horror, like spooky post-apocalyptic movie. I remember a lot of people were very interested. And they went and saw that movie, and they came out um, with largely divisive responses, particularly very like harsh responses from audience members. Like I remember, I saw this back when I was still working at a theater, 
and I saw it with a lot of my fellow employees at, like, an employee screening we did. And um, of, like, that group of, like, 10 to 15 people, I would say uh, 10 of them loathed it. And I was one of the ones that was kind of in the middle of that, had mixed feelings. And one of the other more cinema-prone guys really loved it. And that guy was lambasted <laughs> by that larger majority of people. So it provoked a lot of harsh responses. Um, but, Adam, uh, I think it'll be interesting because uh, you don't even have that kind of mixed reception I initially had about this movie. I think you said at the end of our last episode you're a pretty big fan of It Comes at Night. Yeah, initially I was. I mean, I'm still a fan. I, I don't think I'm as big of a fan as I was when I first saw it. On the rewatch, there there was definitely some uh, things that I was kind of like, okay. Uh, the main one being the sort of dream sequences that you were referencing. Uh, it gets it gets pretty old pretty quick. Uh, but other than that, I really do kind of enjoy this movie. I think there's just this constant sense of dread and tension. I kind of love Joel Edgerton and almost anything he does. And this is no exception. I think he's fucking wonderful in this movie. Um, I think, uh, and you'll have to forgive me, but the other main male lead that he's playing off of from Possessor and things like that. Christopher Abbott, yeah. Christopher Abbott, I think, is wonderful in this movie. Um, I think pretty much across the board, the acting's great. Um, I love the world it sets up. And, but yet doesn't give you too much. You're you're sort of able to, if you want to go that route, fill in the blanks yourself. Like you don't really know what happened. You know, it's a disease, obviously, but uh, you don't know how bad it is everywhere. If it's just in this one state that they're in, you'd have no idea. And uh, like I said, I just, I love the underlying sense of dread this whole movie has. Uh, I think it's a pretty well-crafted paranoia film. Yeah, uh, brief, if you maybe don't remember this movie when it came out, uh, just a synopsis here. Uh, it basically follows uh, two families in the middle of, like you mentioned, there's a vague sort of post-apocalyptic thing that's referenced but never quite is explained about that basically uh, puts everybody in a weird possessive state about being infected with a virus, which, you know, 2017 to now, that has a bit of a different connotation. Um, but uh, the two families, you have Paul, who's played by Joel Edgerton, and Sarah, played by Carmen Jojo and their son, Travis, played by Kelvin Harrison, who are a family unit that uh, at the beginning of the movie has to um, kill the uh, grandfather that was with them initially. And then um, shortly after that, they have an encounter with the Will character, played by Christopher Abbott, who um, is trying to get supplies for his family. And then um, Paul leaves with him to check out like his family and see how things are doing over there. And then comes back with... Will's wife, played by Riley Keogh, and their son Andrew, played by Griffin Robert Faulkner. And it's about basically these two family units initially trying to get along together with each other, but then, you know, you mentioned some of the paranoia comes into effect, and uh, the things start falling apart from there. And like I said, when I saw this initially, I wasn't a huge fan of it. I had mixed feelings, but I was like, oh, no, it looks kind of nice, and the acting's pretty solid, but I don't know if it really comes together that well. And so I was curious to revisit it, maybe see if I found something new to appreciate about the movie. I think a rewatch really hurt the movie for me as well, but to the degree where I would easily say this is one of the worst A24 movies. And I think a lot of that has to do with, like, I like stories usually, especially with these A24 stories. They don't always have to go full-on horror with the horror that's supposed to be there. Like, that's what I even love about, you know, some stuff like The Witch, for example. Like, that's a movie where they tease a lot of, like, stuff about The Witch, and that was a movie that also pissed off and divided audiences. But you were still invested enough in, like, the family unit, and those characters felt pretty fleshed out. 
and all this other stuff that you were invested to keep going. The trouble is, um, despite the best efforts of all these actors who are very talented, I think all of these people are so thin as like sort of archetypes for a post-apocalyptic movie that I don't really have that much investment when we don't see much of any horror here. I think that's fine if you can invest me in the characters in the middle of the situation. The trouble is, I don't think there is really much of a world being built here. I don't think there's much of an interesting, like, dynamic being established that we haven't seen in so many other of these post-apocalyptic movies before. The only difference is really that Trey Edward Schultz kind of has his, like, free-flowing camera that's impressive for, like, the lower budget that it is, like, $5 million budget, that he's able to, like, sort of walk around with that steady cam. But that's a trick he also pulls so often. It's just like, let me just get in the actors' faces for, like, a big one-shot where I, like, go from one person to the other. Like, I'm a pendulum going back and forth, back and forth. And um, I just got so incredibly tired of the few tricks this movie had that, especially knowing where it was going with the second watch, made it... um kind of interminable at even like 92 minutes uh, i think this is this is kind of like everything where like when most people who don't like a24 horror talk about it like the elevated horror quote unquote the, the term that kind of got slapped with these movies by a lot of naysayers um this is one of those movies where like i totally get what they're coming from because this feels like the absolute kind of nadir of a24 horror to me well that sounds like pretty good final thoughts so <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. And, and I, I don't think you're really wrong on any level. Um, I, I don't know. I, I It's really hard for me to even pinpoint what it is about this movie that I think is so positive. Like I said, I, 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 I see. I, love, I really like the cinematography. I like the um, very minimal score that's involved. I, I really do enjoy the Joel Edgerton character and his relationship with his wife. Uh, more so than the relationship with the son. I care more about his relationship with his wife and, and especially her um, in general, I think is really dynamite. Uh, it just sort of the pain she shows after the father, they have to put the father down in a very horrible, horrific way. And then how she's dealing with her son and uh, you know how she deals with Paul and the way he's just kind of blunt about things. And I love the the end with her and where she's, you know, at the top of the stairs with the rifle. I think it's a great scene. I do also wish that it would have leaned more into either the horror genre or more into a character study piece. Uh, I feel it's on the cusp of both of those. I, I think you get enough, but I could also use more. Um, and I think if they would have leaned more into one or the other, we, you would, you personally, and a lot of people would have a completely different opinion of the film. I mean, obviously, because it'd be a different film. Yeah, it'd be a good one. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think the potential is there. I guess I like it for for its potential, if that makes sense. I'm just curious because I I get with like. Um maybe at least Joel Edgerton, because I think I like him a lot as a performer as well. Um, and great. I like Carmen Ajojo in a lot of other things, but I just thought after everything with her father dying at the beginning, I agree, I think that's some of the most interesting stuff with her character. I think she gets really lost in the movie after that, because we focus so much more on, like, the son character and his relationship with Joel Edgerton. Like, you mentioned that's the weaker relationship. That's also, like, the central one of this movie after a certain point. His whole fucking character is just these dream sequences. Like, that's it. Like, he has, like, a bit of a crush on, like, the Riley Keogh character, but mostly it's just, like, him waking up from, like, oh, my God, I had a horrible dream about, like, me having sex with Riley Keogh and she's spitting up black bile. 
oh, I had another dream where I had, like, all this, like, uh, pustules on my hand. Oh, oh, oh. He just fucking keeps waking up with the same thing. It's just, like, all of the most, like, interesting horror imagery is just those dream sequences. And it feels just like... Dream sequences can, I think, either be an interesting thing to implement once and then really develop things about the character, or to maybe be a recurring thread that actually develops stuff that we've also seen in the waking world, versus there's nothing to that Sun character, despite how much he becomes so crucial to the story, to the point where I think that Carmen Jojo, between that opening you're talking about with the grandfather and the ending where she has, like, the gun, I she's barely in the fucking movie after that point. She's just kind of there as a presence, but she, the movie doesn't really focus on her that much at all. I, yeah, I, I guess. I just feel that she gives a quite such a strong performance in comparison to, you know, particularly the, the actor who plays a son. I, I do not like in this movie. And, and it's probably because of the whole dream sequencing and him being very one note as a character. But I, I just think that the performance you do get out of her is so strong that it sort of outshines a lot of the other performances. Joel Edgerton is this is the type of role that he he's to me excels at this very sort of quiet not super dialogue heavy could be you know antagonist could be the pro, you know the protagonist you, you have you have no idea where he's coming from and i think he really excels at that role and i think in this one it's it's no exception i i think he falls in gray like the in this sort of spectrum he's he's very gray it's not black and white with this character in this movie i mean what happens at the end with particularly Riley Keough and the son is horrible. It is horrible. I almost wish, to be honest, that the movie sort of ended with that, with him seeing the effects of what he just did to this other family and sort of, you know, him crying and, and things like that. And then it kind of ending. That's the other thing about this movie, even at 90 whatever minutes. It should have probably ended three minutes earlier than it does, three to five minutes earlier than it does. We know, I think, as an audience, that ultimately the sun's infected and it's going to happen. Obviously, with the 9,000 dream sequences, I don't feel that, that it should that it needed to show it at the end, though. I, I, we got it. You know, you get it. You get what's going to happen. Everyone's going to die. You know, the, there's a thing about bleakness in movies. I do like bleak movies and, and things like that, like movies like The Road, or which is a much better example of a movie like this. But there are also movies where, you know, the bleakness feels artificial and used, manufactured as just a tool to push the story, push the movie. And I don't get that that feeling with this one. Like I said, I, I just feel like they could should have leaned into it more. And I think you'd have had something really, really bleak and dark and sort of depressing. Because um, there are notes of that, like I said, the Riley Keough stuff, the sort of ultimately what happens with the other family trying to get out of the house and the stuff with the grandpa, the stuff with the dog. There's a lot there that is dark and sad and depressing. It sounds like I'm changing my mind about the movie, and, and maybe I am. Um, it's just, I wish they'd lean into even that, just the bleakness of it all. There's a lot of the I wish as opposed to what is. Yeah, there is. There is. I want to address but, something like with that bleakness that you were talking about, because that's ex the that sort of like, oh, it's an artificial bleakness is exactly how I feel about this movie. Like we mentioned the dog thing earlier. The dog really introduces like, oh, he's the only companion to Kelvin. And in theory, you would like to see like that relationship build up between him and the dog. Really isn't he like pets him a couple of times and like that's about it. And the dog is kind of like sort of a watchdog after that. And they have to kill that dog. 
And it's like, I don't mind if you kill a dog in a movie. I'm not one of those people, even though I'm a dog person, where it's like, yeah, you kill sure, a dog, I'm just like, you're a fucking monster piece of shit. How fucking dare you? This movie's terrible. Not I've, never, I've never understood that logic, personally. I mean, I guess some people are, like, very, like, compassionate to dogs to a degree where it's just like, <laughs> I mean, you can't sure. kill them in a movie. But I think it's a really cheap device to use, and I think this movie does it so incredibly cheaply, where it's just like, oh, he's sick. And we don't have much of that, like, the emotional connection you want to get out of Kelvin Harris, he- Harrison hearing that dog being killed should, in theory, be, like, devastating. But to me, it's just, like, this is just some, like, artificial bullshit. Even the thing with the son, the other son, the Andrew character, there's, like, so little to that whole fucking group with, like, Chris Rabbit and Riley Keogh and that son. Like, the most character you get out of them is the bit where, like, he's playing with, like, the Stegosaurus. That's, like, the one bit of character. That's, like, kind of, like, a cute moment. But that's not enough to make me, like, feel like, oh, you killed that kid, but in a way that felt earned. Not at fucking all. That was, like, that was so incredibly cheap. No, I I mean, I don't... I don't think I I can agree with that. Because uh, I, I still definitely felt like, oh, fuck, when it happened. I don't know if it was Riley Killer's reaction. I don't know if it's just the idea of it, like him taking a shot and clearly you know he shot the kid instead of her because I think he was trying to shoot her not the not the kid at first um it, it's just I it, just her reaction afterwards you know you know, kill me blah blah, blah. I, it just it, I found it to be very disturbing and, and sort of like a gut punch I you know I because I'm definitely on the flip side I'm one of those where when you kill kids in movies like I it doesn't bother me like i think it could also be a very sort of useful tool more so than killing an animal at least in my opinion so it definitely got me i mean i i will be honest it, it did get me because like with the whole killing the kid thing it, it oh. feels so much more like in theory like when that works it's like oh my god because you've gotten to be like really invested in like this family dynamic and then when that happens it's like supposed to crush you and i agree that i think riley kyogi is doing her best i think all these actors are doing their best with this kind of characters but I don't personally think, like, it, this affects me about as hard as, say, like, a fucking Walking Dead episode, quite frankly. Like, this feels like it's an artsy that's attempt at, like, a fair. Walking Dead episode. Yeah, or, like, they'll fair. do stuff like that, like, kill a kid, or kill a dog, or, like, have, like, this horrible, like, big thing happen. And it's like, I feel sorry for these actors, most of which are, like, very good, just being stuck with, like, the most baseline material that's very repetitive of just, like, oh my god, the, the paranoia that's supposed to build up, but, like, oh, who can we trust? Who are we supposed to trust? Do I trust this guy with these, like, things that I know about him, but are they really trying to play tricks on me? The problem is that these are all such specific, like, tropes that rely so crucially on us understanding who the characters are initially, and then having that doubt rise up because, wait, that doesn't feel right for that particular person. The trouble is, uh, none of these people have fucking actual character. Beyond very basic traits, like even, like, uh, Joe Ledgerton is like, oh, I'm the overprotective dad of this particular group. Oh, cool, do you have any other interiority to your character? Nope. Not really. Don't have fucking anything, basically. <laughs> and I feel that's pretty much the same with, like, most of these characters. I feel sorry for all these actors being saddled with so little... But ultimately, it just feels like we're going into the tropes of a, like, survivalist horror movie without any of the actual, like, filler that makes it interesting. It's an outline of one of those movies more than it is, like, an actual fucking movie. You know, the thing is, and this is one of the reasons why I love doing this show and also why I hate you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You are you are swaying me a little bit on it. Like, don't get me wrong, I still don't think I, I... dislike it as vehemently as you do like i would not say this is a 24's worst movie by any means but yeah I, I think you might be right to where it's got sort of the bare bones outline 
of a good survivalist horror movie and it's almost there it just it doesn't capitalize on it and that is a shame because it is filled with you know really strong actors and, and really good locations and things like that but now that i sat here and talked to you and and again i really hate this that you know of all people thomas moriarty changed my mind about a movie but uh yeah I, th- yeah, I think you're right. Like I said, I think I, I liked this movie and still do like this movie enough uh, for the potential of what's there, what the potential could be. But yeah, ultimately, it does fall flat, I guess. And I think this is just a big issue with like Trey Edward Schultz, uh, who is somebody who I'd only seen this movie prior of his. He's only done three movies. So I did watch his other two movies, which the first one he did before this was a movie called Cretia. And then the more recent movie he did was Waves, which I'll talk more about Waves in a bit, put a pin in that. But I think with those three movies, he feels kind of like one of these people who kind of understands the A24 formula and then just kind of plays to it as opposed to doing something interesting that A24 gravitates towards. It feels like he's almost like capitalizing on it to a degree that's like smart as like a filmmaker on like a business level, but he's like so lacking in any kind of actual detail to flesh things out. Like this is him talking about, like when he was talking about this movie, he said uh, his simplest explanation for the title, It Comes at Night, is that uh, the title came to him early on in the writing process before characters or plot were fully developed and stuck with him. He has also said it is supposed to represent need to rest, but at night, fear and anxiety can take over. That's a fucking non-answer <laughs> to anything about what this fucking title means. I, okay, I, like yeah, I gotta agree with you there, because even when I was a little bit more positive on the movie, I was always like, what the fuck does it comes at night even mean? <laughs> like, my interpretation was, is, I guess it's nightmares, because there's a lot of those in this movie. You're just in there like, where the fuck's Pennywise? When's, when's he coming up here? It comes at night. <laughs> well, you know, the marketing for this movie was... You know, you you touched on it before, and I still think it's it is really good marketing. Is just it's marketing for a movie that it's not. Unfortunately, the poster art for this movie is fucking perfect, especially for some kind of horror movie with the the back of the dog, you know, staring off into the darkness, barking. And just the title, it comes at night in this dark forest area. Fucking perfect! How cool! That's sort of, I guess, yeah. Yeah, there is missed potential here because the thing is, you know, even in the marketing, even in the trailer, even in this and with the title, it comes at night. You expect there to be something out there, be it creatures or cannibalistic tribe or, you know, whatever it is. Well, Adam, what if I present to you this very original daring thought that I'm sure Trey Edward Saltz is trying to display with this movie? What if the it that comes at night is man? I mean, that's what I was kind of getting at. With the cannibals and stuff, you fucking prick. No, but it's each other. It's us, Adam. It's just, like, two family groups that, like, come toward each other, and then they realize that they are the true monsters. Then I would call you pretentious. (laughs) That's what I would call you. Well, the twist is, I am Trey Edward Schultz. Oh, that's the big thing. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I never realized. I've seen you face to face. (laughs) Uh, I have a very elaborate fat suit. I'm like a you, know, you got weird doubles like fucking Udi Hussein. <laughs> I, I hired Rick Baker to make my suits. Yeah. Right. He's not doing yeah. anything, so I just yeah, got him to 100%. do it. All my A24 money I make. Um, but but yeah, I think that's the thing. It's, like, it's so a movie that is playing on that kind of tired thing, which there are plenty of movies that talk about that specific theme of like, oh, are men the true monsters? But like elaborate on it. And have, like, interesting, like, other 
tentacles to that metaphor that's spread out and are like presented interesting in a visual way or interesting in some other aspect. But this movie is so like uncreative that I think there's a scene that's like so pivotal to the story where Kelvin Harrison is walking down after taking the one kid to bed. And then he's walking around down the hallway and he sees the big red door that's supposed to be locked at all times is unlocked. And then there's a, one of the worst non-jump scares I've ever seen in a movie where he's just staring at the door for a second and then a noise happens from the score and he's like, oh, 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 oh my God. Yeah. There's nothing. It is a nothing burger of a scare. <laughs> I get, okay, let me just ask you. Uh, yes. Flat out. Right. So do you like this movie? <laughs> you know, Adam, I've been very subtle with my thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're fucking, you are dancing around it. Like, just get, <laughs> spit it the I, fuck out, man. I know, I'm too subtle this time about this. Uh, I'm like Trey Edward Schultz. I'm really keeping things uh, close to the chest. Uh, yeah, this movie's fucking terrible. I think, like, I didn't, I didn't hate this initially, but then rewatching it, it just feels like it's kind of, like I said, everything that people criticize A24 horror movies for being. And I think it's, such a shame that like this is sort of like the example of like what not to do and it was like such a big example for a lot of people that i think it might have colored like a24 that quote-unquote elevated horror thing for a lot of folks where it's just like oh like this is so much of like i mentioned it's like a walking dead episode it's one of these post-apocalyptic movies or shows that is just trying to put the sheen of like oh no but we're like an indie artsy movie and we're doing things different why because we have a better camera than somebody who's doing like a straight to streaming thing for like shutter. And that makes us fucking great. And that's the thing is like all of like the camera moves. It's where Edward Schultz has all this other stuff. It's just a disguise. Like it's, it's an emperor has no clothes situation where they're trying to come out. And it's just like, Oh, this is me in my elaborate costume. It's like, no, you're naked. You're not fooling me <laughs> with this bullshit. There's nothing here. It's not maybe the worst A24 horror movie, because like you mentioned, like some of the performances are decent, and I think these actors try and do the best with what they can. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, this is just like, it's it's a nothing burger of a movie. There's just nothing there. You want to bite into a big, juicy burger, but you get like two buns. Like, there's nothing in the middle. No condiments, no burger, no lettuce, no tomato. It's just buns. Uh, so those sound like pretty good final thoughts. Uh, those are actual I, final thoughts, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Adam, if you have any final thoughts yourself. There's a wealth of potential here. There is a lot of pretty solid performances, great actors. Uh, you know, it's not a story that's never been told before. Like I said, The Road and The Rover, which another A24 movie, which is, is super solid. It's a lot of fluff in the marketing with no money shot in the payoff. It, it's just not the worst thing they've done. Uh, but you know, it is definitely one that will not stand the test of time, especially in the pantheon of a 24 horror films. Yeah. And by the way, I want to emphasize that all my issues are really with the movie and not just the marketing, like the marketing that affected people elsewhere coming out of the movie. But like you, you, you shouldn't judge a movie by its trailer. You should judge it by the content of the actual film. I agree. No, I, de I definitely agree. But you know, you also got to speak on if a movie is marketed in one way that is completely different to what the content of the film is, then you know, chances are that was a calculated decision to put butts in the seats. Right, right. Which A24 is also business at the same time. It's a studio mm -hmm. that makes these interesting movies. So they have mm -hmm. to, I guess, do that to some extent. But whereas like with a witch trailer was much more like sort of uh, shielding some of the more character based nuance stuff. I think we're going to talk about that one in a little bit. So. Right. Put a pin in it. 
We'll put a pin in it. But yeah, but there have been other times where A24 does that, a bit of a bait and switch, but the movie's still good. Uh, not so much when it comes at night, though. At least uh, for moi. And maybe a bit for Adam after this discussion. Yeah, now. <laughs> I'm retired. This is my last episode. Oh, well, let's see if any of that potentially can be turned around by our good feature, The Farewell. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. When that is dying. She doesn't know. So you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Don't you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. Shouldn't we tell her? Isn't that wrong to lie? It's a good lie. Most families in China would choose not to tell her. She's dying. Can you be a little more sensitive? What do you want from me? To scream and cry like you? Ah! So The Farewell came out July 12th, 2019, uh, from writer-director Lulu Wang, um, who, this is her second feature. I haven't seen her first film, but interesting little factoid, uh, she is also uh, in a relationship with Barry Jenkins, director of Moonlight, Adam. What a power couple. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, boy. Those, dude, I could not go to dinner with those two. I would be bawling constantly. <laughs> but you'd be really charmed, and then as the conversation went along, it would be really beautiful, and you'd just be like, oh. <laughs> Ultimately, you'd feel really good about myself at the end of it, but still cry the whole time to get there. So this was your good choice, Adam, that we ended uh-huh. up picking. Um, I had seen this before, and I remember it was pretty like buzzy when it came out um, in that summer. Uh, interestingly, when this came out, it actually beat Avengers Endgame's uh, record for the best per screen average in terms of, like, box office gross, which is pretty interesting. Um, and what? It was, like, in terms of, like, basically, like, per screen average, it's just how much money it makes per individual screen. Oh, I gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha, right. I gotcha. Not, 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 it didn't outgrow, it didn't make over a billion dollars. I was going where the fuck, I was gonna say, where the fuck was I? It would be great <laughs> if, like, the Farewell, Avengers Endgame, Avatar, the three highest grossing movies of all time, that'd be amazing. <laughs> but, not the case. Uh, but Adam, you had not seen this before despite picking it. So, uh, what did you think of The Farewell? Maybe give people a bit of a plot synopsis in case they weren't aware. Okay, basic plot synopsis is we follow a young woman who's uh, of Chinese heritage. She's lived in America since she was like six, I believe is what they say. You know, her, her father, and her mother all migrated to America. Her father's a translator, blah, blah, blah. All of her family is still back in China. Um, and she has a very close relationship with her grandmother. Uh, they talk daily and, and all that. And... Uh, she finds out that her grandmother is dying of um, stage four lung cancer. Doctors only given her a couple months. Well, as is something, and I honestly didn't even know this was really a thing, but, but apparently in the East, a lot of families won't tell sort of the patriarchs or matriarchs or other family members that they are dying. Oh, and which was the case actually with Lulu Wong, like her, this is based which is on, a, the, yeah, based on the true story. Right, right. Yes. Based on her and her grandmother. And it's because they think that the fear of death makes it a harder death to die. And, and, and so they all go to see her, but they use the 
sort of cover story that it's the only other grandchild's wedding. That way they can all get together and spend time with her as a family before they go. And it's sort of the journey of the uh, the main character played by Aquafina as she struggles with how do we do we tell her, do we not tell her, and sort of struggles with her as identity as being Chinese and also American and sort of the cultural differences there and you know just growing up without any of her family other than her mother and father and, and all that really my initial thoughts were um I loved it I I think it's fucking beautiful in almost every way uh a I always thought Aquafina was a pretty good actress, but Jesus Christ, it's like a phenom performance in this. I mean, it's a, it's legitimately a star making turn and as good as she is, everybody around her is good. I mean, there's so many recognizable character actors in this, like the, the actor who plays her father, you've seen a thousand times. Yeah. Zima who like was in the, the lady killers and some other things. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to try to pronounce any of the names just because I have such a hard time with that. But the elderly woman who plays the grandmother, you fall in love with her almost instantly. I mean, pretty much right away. Like her her very first couple lines, I was like, oh, I love this lady. You know, she's talking to Aquafina. She's like, you know, be careful in New York. I read that the people will steal your earrings right out of your ears. And they'll leave you with scars. And, you know, she's like, I'm not wearing earrings, Grandma. Okay, are you cold? Are you wearing a hat? Yes, I'm wearing a hat. You know, it's she's just, not wearing a hat at all. She's not wearing a hat at all. She's just shining her grandma. She's doing something like all, all people do, mm-hmm. you know, with your grandparents or even your parents if you don't live with them anymore, you know. Are you taking care of yourself? Yes, I'm taking care of myself, even though you're fucking sitting there eating a double cheeseburger pounding a Heineken. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, but it's just, it's such a relatable story, no matter you know, what culture you're from, just sort of family and, and the dynamics, you know, of family with different family members and how you all view each other differently. And, and some people, you know, what they take as insults to what you took as a point of maybe pride or personal growth. And it's just, it's such a beautiful, beautifully told little family's dynamic story, at least myself. And I, I think you'll agree. And I think most people do given the most critical reception and, and viewer reception, um, you find yourself sort of not only I falling in love with most of the characters in this movie, if not all of them, but also being able to identify with most of them in a certain way too. And there's, it's, it's very sweetly told. It's very, uh, you know, just a really great coming of age growth story, but also just splices of just really gut-bustingly cute and funny scenes it's just it's so well done it got me yeah i mean i saw this when it came out originally and i loved it then it was one of my favorite movies of 2019 and yeah rewatching it again it still is like so incredible i think it's because i do agree that there's a sort of universality to at least a lot of the emotions you get out of just like oh coming back to family meeting back up with these people having a different perspective especially as like an adult coming back to you know these people but also it, there, there is so inherently about like a Chinese-American family going back to China and so many of the conflicts that happened from there. And yeah, you mentioned like some of the pronunciation thing. I'll just say one, um, the actress is uh, Zhao Xu Zhen, who plays Nene, who is great. I completely agree with that. And two, just a disclaimer, we're two white dudes, so we could easily get either pronunciations or things wrong, clearly. 
about the cultures and we apologize in advance for that. Yeah, that's not why I don't do it. That's literally not Right. Phonetically, I cannot put it together. I would sound like a moron. Right, as opposed to me who sounds like a moron. (laughs) But but no, I I just love the, with, with this movie, that like, it is still so inherently, like, specifically of this culture where there's stuff like the scene where they're at the one restaurant that's like rotating the food around and they're talking about the fact of like oh yeah well um we've been in america for so long and it's like oh what about well when you go over to america isn't it easier to get like money like it is here in china how long will it take you to become a millionaire in america it's a long time really don't take that long here you know, right, that's and, just... and the conflicts, but just like, oh, I think you all are just forgetting about your Chinese heritage. It's like, but yeah, you're sending your young kid to college in America. It's like, oh, he'll come back, and all this other stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Assuredness of like, oh no, he'll stick to his cultural heritage even if he goes over. Like, I love how they're dealing with some of these like conflicting back and forth things that just give you a window into just like also a different culture where it's just like they like there's an equivalent you might be able to find that the way this movie uses language, I love so much because it's mostly in Mandarin. Like there's a like I'd say ninety percent of the dialogue is in Mandarin, and there's a few points where they use English. But even then, the implementations of English are so perfect. Like the scene where they go to the one like the hot doctor that Nene's yeah, trying yeah, to set yeah. up Aquafina with, but where she uses English, just like look, you can tell me like is she actually like dire? Like she's not gonna understand English, and like they're having the back and forth conversation that's like so brutal and horrible. And then it's just like oh, they're gonna get like closer together. Oh, oh like, Nene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the grandmother nine a character is sitting there just smiling, like you're <laughs> like, oh, finally she found somebody, and right, yeah, it's fucking great, dude. It's fucking great. One of my favorite scenes, probably of the movie, really, is when she stumbles across her father and her uncle, you know, in the hotel, sitting there smoking cigarettes and stuff. Yes, and just the these two guys who are of similar age. I mean, obviously the. The uncles, he says he's the older brother, but it, it's not by much. And just how much different their opinion is on what they should do, whether or not they should tell her. The father is so conflicted where he's like, look, I have to go with what the family says. I'm sorry. You know, and then when the uncle explains it to her and just this, this, this is what I mean by Aquafina in this movie. It, it's so fucking amazing. Like the uncle explains to her why we're doing this. We're taking on the burden of this disease so she doesn't have to. And we're taking on the burden of, you know, not telling her we'll be miserable so she doesn't have to. You know, as a family, that's what you do. And you can see the hurt in Aquafina's face and eyes. I mean, they're just welling up, but you also get like, where she understands where he's coming from at the same time and she right. starts or, to go with it. Right. Or even, I love the other detail of like, they're both smoking and like, particularly the father had said like he was going to, he had quit smoking and it's like, yeah, I quit or I'm going to like, shut up. <laughs> I've been a stressful point. And like the, and, but then Aquafina's reaction at the same time is very much like so relatable in terms of like, it's not like, how dare you do this? I can't believe you do this. It's like an actual human thing. I'm just like, man, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like there's an exasperation there. Just like, God. yeah, it's, it's great. She's like, what are you doing? Don't give him any more cigarettes. He's like, Hey, he's your father. Don't control him. Right. Right. Where she's sort of play, being playful, but he's taking it in a completely different way because of, you know, how they were raised and things like that. And yo, the uncle and her have another great scene, you know, one where he's telling her, you know, we can't tell her, we can't tell her. And they're walking down the street and she's just responding. Saying, I, know. I know, I know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know, like at least 10 times. But his speech at the wedding. 
Oh, dude. Right? Like, Because, like you mentioned, like, he's spent so much of the time trying to, like, be closed off and say, like, no, we're not going to reveal all this. And he can't when he's just looking at his mom from that stage. Oh, like, it's all just, I mean, like, crumbling apart. And he breaks the fuck down. And, I mean, it's so sad. You know, it, that, I mean, don't get me wrong. I cried at this movie. That's not the scene that got me, but that was a very sad moment. Well, I think another great thing is like to even the contrast with that was like her um, Billy is the name of Aquafina's character. Her relationship yeah. with her mother is like a complete inverse of that, where so much of like their relationship, which Diana Lynn is the name of the woman who plays the mother. At first, I hated that character. Mm-hmm. At first, you kind of hate the mother. Right, because she's initially like, oh, hey, you well, even before that, when they're in America still, and just like, oh, wait, I should go over and see Nene if she's dying. It's like, no, you'll be too emotional and you reveal and you'll ruin the whole thing. Like, if right. you go over there. And it's like, how dare you? And then the moment she comes over, the first thing is just like, how did you get this the ticket for this trip? Did you, like, spend on a credit card, probably? Of course, you can't afford this trip. Like, there's so much of, like, yeah, that stuff where it's like, oh, she seems so emotionally closed off and distant. Uh-huh. And you can tell that hurts her to the point where... It's the fucking scene where, like, the bride of the cousin is getting made up and, like, all the the women are in that one room. And fucking Aquafina just breaks down about just, like, you know, one of the few happy things in my fucking childhood was hanging out with Nene. She was so great and she was so emotionally supportive and so good. And you were constantly so distant whenever we we moved to America. Just the three of us, I felt so alone. And the story about the grandfather at the same moment. Yes, right. Like, nobody told me. Nobody told me he was dying. Or he was sick, and then he was there, and then he disappeared. I never saw him again. And how much it hurt her and how much it affected her. And, you know, the mom is sitting there, and, and, and you're right. That it's a great moment for the for the mother character, where she's sitting there sort of like, you could see it a little bit in her face here. She's regretful, but at the same time, she's kind of, I think, pissed that she's revealing all this in front of everybody. But right. it's at the, the moment in the car, which is such a great moment. Where the mom is, you know, turned away from her, but she's obviously crying because the mom explains why she doesn't show emotion and things like yeah, that. Yeah, at the hotel know? where it's just like, if, yeah. I, if you don't reveal like, oh, you're crying about everything, then like they think you hate your family. But you're trying to be strong at the same time. You're trying to be the strong person because you see it because like with the dad who's like kind of breaking apart and Aquafina, she has to kind of like feel like she has to be the rock in this relationship yes. that keeps things together. Right. And it's the scene, you know, like I said, in the in the car, the cab ride at the sort of the climax of the film where she's turned away. And, and, you know, Billy sees that her mom is upset and crying. And yet you could tell she wants to put her arm around her. You think she's going to. And she doesn't because she knows her mom doesn't like being emotional and doesn't like getting involved in this stuff. So she she doesn't want to draw attention to it and she doesn't want to. And she respects her wishes. To she not respects be, her guess, wishes, yeah. right? And it's so it's such a great moment, but at the same time, like, oh god, I I mean, how could, I don't know that I couldn't like grab my mom and be like, don't cry, don't cry. Like, it's just it's such a good moment. It does such a great job this whole movie of like really painting all of these characters into such developed, beautiful people. Like, I love particularly all the stuff with uh, Lu Hong who plays Little Nene, and that's actually. Uh, Lulu Wong's other grandmother. And she's great. Side of things. She's so phenomenal, especially the bit at the wedding where she's talking to the mother character about, like, my husband's going to retire. I'm going to finally go visit him after, you know, Nene does pass. And then we're going to travel the world like we always wanted to. Oh, you can come over to America and see us. Yeah, we'll take you around for sure. I'm going to do great. I'm going to do fine. And then Lulu Wong holds on her face. And you oh, just no. see her kind of dissolve because just like, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. Life can turn in so many different ways and make that plan completely fall apart in front of my fucking face. 
And that's such a beautiful, tragic moment. That isn't, like, overtly tragic. It's not overly manipulating you like it comes at night with a tragedy that's there. It's all very <laughs> human and earnest and earned. Yeah, no, I completely agree. There, There's, you know, there's not a moment of this movie um, that I felt emotionally manipulated. And a lot of these type of movies, you know, can do that. We're like, oh, that's a fucking cheap shot. And, you know, it'll get you and get you crying or something. I didn't feel that in this movie at all. Like I was a hundred percent on on the there on the ride with the you know to for the film and for the family and and really like I said fell in love with every character even the ones like I said like the mom I wasn't too plot positive on in the beginning but by the end you're like oh god this poor woman like what she's you know how she's had to shut herself off emotionally and things like that it, it's just it's 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 really something I, I will say uh, the scene you know might as well reveal it the scene that got me is the uh right after it's at the end basically but after she's in the hotel room with aquafina and she gives her the money and stuff like that the the grandmother character and then they're outside hugging and it's pure silence and it's a good 30 seconds to a minute long of them just Mm -hmm. grasping each other and then the line is you know you have to go because i can't control it anymore the grandmother says it to her and then they drive off and as you know the grandmother's standing there sort of waving at them then the hand goes to the mouth and you can tell she's bawling. And I was like, Oh fuck me. Like, it's so just, beautiful. Yeah. I, it's great. I lost it. And then, so I lose it. I lose it. And I'm like, Oh fuck dude. Oh, and I'm literally doing those where I'm going, Oh fuck me. Oh fuck. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And then the credit video rolls. Well, hold, <laughs> I, I, I want, I want to put a pin in that. Cause I want to discuss yeah, that near the end Jesus of this. Cause, Christ. but but um, I, I do agree with you about, like, all of that stuff, particularly, like, the fact that she's like, oh, no, I'm, we can't – I won't be able to control it if we stay around for too long. It's too many sad feelings here. I think that's that's the thing that works so well is that all these people are inherently emotionally closed off to some degree. Like, even Aquafina is painted as, like, oh, you're the more overly emotional one. But she's she still really is, like, not. much – Right, she's much more stoic, but because she has, like, a bit more scenes where she's, like, cries or whatever, it's like, oh, whoa, Miss fucking Hanky over here, look at you. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's not necessarily that she's even crying because that doesn't happen a lot in this movie. It's scenes right. where she's just not pretending to be happy and like everything's okay. She's just being quiet and a little bit bummed out. Right. And and I love the fact that even like with the Nene character, despite how close they are at the same time, there are still those needling things that feel very realistic to like someone who means well, but at the same time is clearly like kind of insulting you yeah. in an unintentional way with like, oh, you can't act weird at the wedding. <laughs> Uh-huh. Just like you, like don't be you, basically. It's just like wow, yeah, yeah. kind of a right. dick move, but also you get it. Like you get that, like what she's trying to dis- like mean for that. Where it's just like, look, I want you to be happy. I love you so much. I would hope that you would like display that to me a bit more. And you can't just like d- be like so closed off with like your other family members are there. And I love all the stuff at the wedding. The wedding is so fucking charming. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. At, like, it's it's at this like shitty pool hall looking place. And I love the whole thing with like crab, where it's like, oh, we were supposed to have lobster, but the crabs come out. Which is so fun. And then all like the, the particular little thing when they're doing like the musical chair sort of game where they're going around each other is like so wonderful. It's so cute. How how is getting fucked up. Yep. <laughs> he's great. He's like he's also like a, he's more of like the blubbering mess of the family than anything. She's like, oh he's so sensitive. And yeah. like at the end when he's like well, so we can't have a group full where the groom is crying. We can't I mean he loses it. He really does. I mean, Jesus. But yeah, it's great. You got the one singing opera. You got uh, Billy and her dad doing karaoke. Oh, yeah. The the, the Killing Me Softly. So Yeah, Killing Me Softly. Great. 
you got the dance like the two girls doing like a like an eighties hip hop dance. Yes, uh, I mean it's yeah and I, those things those banquet halls that they're in. I mean I've never been to China, but I've worked in banquet halls that are like that, and it's very accurate to where all the staff just doesn't give a fuck. They, like the one chef who comes up just like I was just told I was just told we'd make crab. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, dude. The guy, the the one sitting there, you know, they're playing the drums and doing it, and then as soon as it's over, they just pack their shit up and go sit outside and smoke cigarettes. Oh yeah, I love that too. Like the shot where all of them are dancing outside. Like there's the one server who's just like on her phone, and the other yeah. one's like smoking a cigarette in the Chinese dragon costume. Like half of it's off. Yeah, right, exactly. Like that. And that's a so hundred. That's a, that's so accurate. I used yeah. to work at a, a banquet hall in Florida called the Palace Grand, and I will tell you right now, every person who works at the banquet hall, from the wait staff to the chef, to any of the kitchen crew, because I was, I was like a sous chef. We don't care about how this is your special day. We didn't care about how happy you guys were and how beautiful we made everything for you and how much you liked the food. We want to go the fuck home. And that was so accurate. It's so, I was almost laughing too loud. Like, I almost woke my wife up. I was laughing so hard. Because I'm like, yep, been there. That's 100% real. Right. I mean, and that's the thing is, the, what I love also about just the way that even Lulu Wong sh- shoots this movie. Like, it looks beautiful, but at the same time, there is the sort of, like, gray filter of sorts over everything. Just to display, not necessarily, like, it's, oh, it's just overly depressing. But it's like, there's something hanging over this whole movie, even visually. Yes. Just the, that agree. whole factor of, like, Nene's, like, uh, diagnosis is just hanging on these people. And it just colored the whole movie to a certain degree, where even in the middle of this like happy scenario of like, oh, we're having a big wedding, there is still like a bit of gray mm-hmm. just to intimate the fact that like, oh, we're still lying about something. We're keeping something in emotionally. And we think it's the right thing, but is it really the right thing? Some of those questions there. And even just the way that like she shoots some of them, like the one place they go to where like they're fitting the uh, bride for her gown. I love how so much of the scenes between Aquafina and Nene are shot from like the back. Like there's that one beautiful looking tree display that yeah. they're like, when we see them talking, it's from like behind and there's like, we see the interior and how it's just like, oh, it's like styrofoam and packaging and all this other bullshit. <laughs> it's like behind, like there's so much of like, oh, any of this facade that we have, so much of it is portrayed as like, oh, we're looking at the other side of it and what we're just kind of like hiding ultimately at the same time. Even visually, it presents that beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Another scene that I, re- it, I thought was very funny, but I think it's very poignant too, is them at the grandfather's grave. Where they're all, you know, no, you have to peel the orange. How the hell is he going to eat it if you don't peel it? You know, no, you're, he quit smoking. He never quit smoking. Yes, he did. About two weeks before he died. No, he told you that. He never quit. Who cares? He's dead. Let him have a cigarette. You know, they got, they're eating the cookies and they're putting down the steamed buns and all. And then the constant bowing. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm getting nauseous for bowing right, right. And, and they keep saying just like uh what else what else who do we yeah, like, the yeah, yeah. like hmm, who else do we <laughs> praise here <laughs> even to the point Bless. where her, even the point where her sister is like you know let me win a lot of money on mahjong like okay all right <laughs> yeah yep <laughs> like it's just it's so good it's so so well done and that's the thing like this movie does is so deft at balancing the humor with a lot of that drama that's there at the same time in a way that feels like you are at a like family gathering yeah. Where, like, you, you love these people and you haven't seen them in a while. And you're like, oh, you remember a lot of the good times. But also, oh, yeah, you're, you're an adult now. It's like an Aquafina is. You're, like, 30. And you realize, like, oh, yeah, these are all people with, like, really shitty hang-ups as well. That I have to kind of realize. Like, they're not these figures I remember from when I was a little kid. 
Or even when, like, she meets, like, her younger cousin who's, like, the little kid. And it's like, oh, I remember when you were super little. Like, I'm not little anymore. I just love, like, like there's so many, like, real emotional things. And I'm curious, Adam, with that kind of balance of drama and comedy. You mentioned Aquafina being yeah. so spectacular here. And we've seen her in other things. Like, sure, obviously, sure. like, in Shang-Chi and some of these other stuff. Like, the biggest trouble for me with this movie, in terms of, like, Aquafina's career, is, like, she's so good here. And then I've seen her, like, I'm worried she's going to be overexposed in a similar way to say, like, unfortunately, this happens a lot with, like, people of color who are, like, kind of famous for being comedic, like, sort of side characters get super overexposed in America, especially in comedies. Like, I think of, there's a similar thing with, like, Tiffany Haddish, where I think the yeah. two of them are just being, like, really front-loaded, like, oh, we're gonna have you voice a character here, and then be a supporting character in this movie or on this show and all this other stuff, and it feels like they might be overexposed to a degree that might, unfortunately, affect or harm their careers for a bit. How do you feel that, like, Aquafina can kind of learn from this and kind of take it into the rest of her career? Search out these type of roles. See, not necessarily, you know, ones that center around her being a person of color, which is great, though, if she does, because you need more movies like that. But mm. take more small, you know, independent sort of work. Be, be Let yourself get cast as the lead in sort of dramas or even something with comedy to it. Like this does have a fair amount of comedy. You know, unfortunately she was involved in that controversy. I don't know. I mean, six months to a year ago, to a year ago or whatever, where she was accused of sort of appropriating black culture. Um, oh, right. You know, it's, it's a big long thing. I don't want to really get into it. We're um, not the ones to speak on it. No, but I, I, it seems like it might have dwindled and died down. I hope it didn't hurt her career, but I also hope that she sort of, does more movies like this smaller pieces character pieces i don't necessarily want to see aquafina that we saw in shang chi and everything i don't want that right or aquafina that we saw in oceans eight or whatever it was we've got that we've seen it it's fine aquafina in the farewell has unlimited potential to really do some great dramatic acting or even just smaller comedy acting not enough doesn't have to be big and boisterous and you know quirky and weird like she's she's so good in this to where be hard pressed if someone didn't know who she was and sort of followed her knew what her career was as sort of a youtube sort of rapper slash talk show host slash whatever i i i honestly think you'd be hard pressed if you showed this movie to someone if they would think that she's been doing it for years i mean she's so fucking good at this your heart breaks with her in this movie yeah, because like I don't mind her necessarily taking on you know some like this or like she has the Comedy Central show and some other things like that. Mm-hmm. Where she does like some of her more comedic stuff, and she can be fun in that. I just hope she doesn't take too many of those on. And she kind of has like I mentioned, like Tiffany Haddish had that problem where she was just like so overtly overexposed, and people unfortunately got sick of her despite how talented she is. But then she ended up kind of bouncing back a bit with like the card counter. If anything, I want to see Aquafina do something like that. Like, something just, like, yeah. real, like where she has, like, a bit of, like, that humor that you mentioned. She's kind of, like, a bit more of a comedic relief to that very dark movie with, uh-huh. uh, it, with uh, Tiffany Haddish and that in the card counter. That is a very dark movie. Right. She oh, kind of, you're just like, oh, thank God, Tiffany. Oh, going to be a couple laughs here. Uh, but she's also a really great, well-developed character that's not at all just, like, the Tiffany Haddish persona. I hope at the same time that Aquafina can take on, like, you know, kind of do one for me, one for... Yeah, the, I agree. The, the big comedy paycheck kind of roles. I hope she can do that. Me too. Me too. Uh, let's go ahead and get into our final thoughts here. Adam, your final thoughts on The Farewell. Like I said, I, I, I think it's a beautiful movie. I think it's it pretty much expertly crafted, uh, acted, shot. The story is 
it's just it's beautiful it hits you in all the emotions and uh you know something we put a pin in earlier but i i mentioned there was another scene that sort of i'd stop mm-hmm. crying yes. and then it got me right back into it at the end right after sort of the main film ends you get a video of an an older uh, chinese woman doing the sort of the kiad power you know noises that the nene does in the movie she's in there you know doing the noises and throwing her thrusting her hands out and then you get the text that that's the actual woman that it's based on and she's still alive six years later right lulu wong's actual nene yeah actual nene is still alive even after the diagnosis she's still going strong six years six years after she was given months and yeah, I was instantly like, oh, fuck, no. Like, like here it is. And uh, it, it's just such a beautiful moment to end the movie on. To where, you know, these people at the end of the movie are like, oh, my God, they just said their final goodbyes. And you feel so bad for them. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, they didn't. Oh, good, good. It's just, it's such a sweet moment. And I, like I said, I think this movie, if anything, if you want to call it anything, is sweet. Yeah, and to speak on that thing, too, I know some people, like, some reacted a bit different. They were just like, oh, that feels like kind of cheapens some of the stuff that happened earlier. I really don't agree with that. I yeah, think it does no. a really great job of, like, it, it shows that, like, this movie's all about, like, look, life takes certain turns that are really, like, upsetting or unfortunate. It can be kind of dour. But it's like this movie where so much, like, you can either have, like, a really fun moment with your family and then, like, an awful moment that kind of makes you sober up a bit happens. That's what this is. It's just, like, it's a thing of, like, oh, you know, Nene could have died after this point, but, you know, life takes a different turn. But, like, she's still going strong. I don't understand that logic by that, oh, that cheapens everything they went through. No, it doesn't. No, no, I mean, it, but the it, the cheap is at least like the ending bit where it's like, oh, they're saying their goodbyes or whatever. Yeah, no, I, I get After that. that I, I get that. But I'm saying it doesn't, though. Because at that yeah. moment in time, they thought that was the end. Right. What the fuck? Who can, nobody can see into the fucking future. Nobody knows. At that moment in time, it was very real. That was the end of, that was it for them. That was the last time they were going to see her. Right, the emotions are what matter in that moment as opposed to... Yeah, like, a thousand like, percent. You know, right, it happened right after. Yeah, it's, it's very emotionally honest and true, which is like mm-hmm. describes the whole movie perfectly, pretty much. Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I think it's still a phenomenal movie. I think it's it's a great way of like making a culture, you know, for us, you know, two white guys. It makes a sort of culture we're unfamiliar with so much more like relatable, but also at the same time very distinctive. It doesn't hide any of the cultural elements that are there. At the same time, there's like so many things where it's like, oh, I can relate to a moment like this, or I feel like I have more of an understanding of a culture I wasn't as aware of at the same time. I think it does a great job, like balancing those two elements and definitely put Lulu Wong as somebody where it's like, I want to see you do way more stuff, like whatever the fuck you have. It's kind of like you had with like Barry Jenkins with Moonlight, where it's just like more of you, please, please keep making stuff. You're great. (laughs) I want to see way more of whatever the hell you're doing. And hopefully A24 can continue to support her doing such a thing. And also just an interesting tidbit to even add on to that element of the the ending thing where Nene was, you know, alive at the end. Nene, the actual real Nene, found out about her diagnosis from this movie's release. Oh, like she was apparently talking to her sister and found out like because she had at least like recorded that bit and had been aware like throughout production about like, oh yeah, like it was gonna be um, like, based on real events and kind of, ha- like, be about her relationship with her family, but then finding out, like, oh, yeah, that's what you hit. But at the same time, the movie is well aware that, like, oh, no, this is a thing because they establish at a certain point, like, oh, what, you don't think is aware of this? Like, she did the same thing with her grandmother and even your grandfather. Like, she did the same thing, too. She didn't tell him until, like, the very end. So it's, like, it's a thing where, like, oh, she wasn't aware of, like, her diagnosis, but it's part of, like, this cultural thing at the same time. 
So it's like, well, I, I can imagine the conversation with Nana going like, how dare you hide that from me? It's like, motherfucker, <laughs> we did this before. <laughs> now it's just on you. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's insane to me. Wow. What a way to break it or her to find out. <laughs> I made a major motion picture starring Aquafina. <laughs> Yeah right. yeah, right, right. Oh, geez. Well, that's the discussion for our two movies, but we still have our recurring segment to talk about, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double, 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 double. Redo! That works. So, The Double Redo is a segment that Adam and I do every week where we, uh, along with talking about the two features we select for the episode, we each bring in a good and a bad feature to either recommend and then not recommend to all of you all based on the topic, in this case being, of course, A24. So, Adam, you have a good pick and a bad pick uh-huh. I do. to talk about. I do. Go ahead. So, for my good pick, I have one that's been sort of mentioned on the episode already a couple times. Um, it's the movie that really got me into A24. It's the movie that got me into their brand of horror, you know, whatever, intellectual horror, whatever the fucking stupid term is. I still love it. I still think it's an expertly crafted film. Um, it made me a fan of this director to this day. I love this guy, even though I haven't seen his newest movie yet, which, eh, fuck. But I have The Witch um, with Anna Taylor-Joy. Talk about a movie that is filled with sort of dread and suspense and tension throughout i mean it's this movie it's this movie is so fucking not only beautiful to look at because of the the way it's shot with the natural lighting but the acting and just sort of this movie gave us anya taylor joy really and she's one of those up-and-comers who's just a phenom and it's just it's scary as fuck uh, the Black Phillip reveal is amazing. The ending is fucking great. And the implications of what it is is terrifying. Um, I, I just think The Witch is, as far as in that genre of, you know, subgenre of horror, if you want to call it that, with sort of like Midsommar and Hereditary and all those other ones, I, I still think The Witch is the best one. I, I think it's absolutely a perfect, perfect film. They're my bad one. Um, it's one I just recently seen. It's with uh, Oscar Isaac and Taylor Kitsch. It's Mojave, you know, named after the desert. And it's, it's you know, brief and up-and-coming film director, takes off to the desert, meets a fucking stranger who ends up being like a stalker killer, and they go through this whole fucking cat and mouse situation. It's, it's, it's just pretentious garbage. Listen to every interview that Hulk Hogan did in the 80s where he says brother. Add those together, multiply it by 10, and you have how many times Oscar Isaac and Taylor Kitsch call each other brother in this movie. It is so bad that I'm telling you, if you were to make a drinking game out of it, you would be dead 20 minutes in. The dialogue is just nonsensical crap. Oscar Isaac has probably the worst fake accent ever. Taylor Kitsch is just wooden. He's a piece of drywall. Uh, It's just, it's fucking lousy dude it's it so wants to be this psychological thriller that all it comes across is just a movie that you want to talk about is filled with unlikable people this movie has it in fucking spades everybody sucks in this movie you hate this movie the one thing i'll give it 
it's got one of the only times Mark Wahlberg's died in a movie. It doesn't happen often. Uh, it does this. He's got, I'll tell you what, he's a fun little cameo in it. Walt Goggins has a fun little cameo in it. There's, there's some pretty cool actors in this movie. It's just, like I said, comes off just this pretentious, weird mess. Yeah, I haven't seen Mojave, though. I am looking at the Wikipedia entry, and I will say, um, I guess Taylor Kitsch was so bad in it that you forgot he was Garrett Hedlund. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Those guys, they're the same fucking guy. I mean, look, they, they do look similar. I'm not going to deny that. And they're both, and they're both terrible. <laughs> Gary Hillen's been good in a couple things. Like really, what? Like Inside the Will and Davis. And there's a couple other things. Oh, like, yeah, I, he's all right, yeah, I think yeah. he's, yeah, I think he's been... Whatever, handsome, li- handsome white dude with scruffy facial hair and long hair. Right, that's true. If you put him and like Aaron Taylor Johnson, it would be one of those like, which is the one that I shoot? Exactly, you know, a thousand percent, <laughs> thousand percent. The Taylor Kitsch stand behind him. Hey, I was in John Carter, man. And he'd be like, Ah, fuck, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I haven't seen that particular movie. Um, and then uh, the witch, obviously, I, I haven't seen. I saw it in the theater, and then I saw it again fairly recently as part of like a pre-Northman viewing because um, we'd recently done The Lighthouse. I was like, I haven't seen this movie in a while. Yeah, that movie still is pretty fucking great. And shout out, like, I agree, Alan Taylor-Joy is so phenomenal. That was, like, her first big movie. But also, Ralph Ineson as her dad, and then um, Kate Dickey as the mom are also so Oh, yeah. Don't you want Ralph Ineson to be, like, a voice actor after that? Like, that dude's voice. He's got Jesus. the perfect voice. Um, yeah, and even, like, the little kids who play, like, the other, like, siblings are so good. Those two twins are, like, so perfectly annoying <laughs> as just little assholes. Uh, but, but yeah, I, that movie's so stellar. And I think that's that's a great example of, like, the elevated horror thing, which we referenced a lot in the It Comes at Night thing. But that was based on, like, a Guardian review that was talking about that sort of trend. And I agree that there's, like, at least a kind of trend with, like, those kind of horror movies that are a bit less, like, super spooky horror-driven. But the elevated horror term, I think, is a really bad one, just that kind of puts immediate bad faith on any of those movies, where it's like, oh, we're above horror, we're not actually horror films. It's like, no, they're actual horror films. They have a different style and aesthetic, but they're still horror movies, necessarily. I just argue that, like, something like The Witch isn't, like, looking down at horror, if anything, is doing a great job of, like, doing a version of folk horror that's a bit more modern, but at the same time has, like, certain spooky things that are, like, so integral to the genre. If anything, that's the problem with It Comes at Night, is it kind of puts, like, it more tests that kind of uh, bad faith argument. It's like, oh, no, that's way more of what this is. It kind of looks down at horror, and she's like, no, we're a bit, we're different than that, even though you're not. Fuck you, dude. <laughs> but it's time for me to do my choices here. And um, I'll go ahead and with uh, my good one, I have a movie that was so criminally under even though I got a Best uh, Original Screenplay nomination uh, at the Oscars the year it came out, I have 20th Century Women, which is basically this uh, movie directed by Mike Mills that takes place in 1979, and it's about a young boy who is uh, being raised by a single mother played by Annette Bening. And um, Annette Bening's a bit conflicted about like, well, you know, I don't have a father figure in his life, his father left at such when he was a lot younger. So now I, I want to have at least some help raising him because I don't know if I'm not doing the best job. She enlists the help of the uh, person who is subletting a room in their uh, house, uh, played by Greta Gerwig, who's kind of like a bit older. She's like in her, you know, mid to late 20s. And then also uh, the young woman who is like best friends with the son character, played by Elle Fanning, to basically kind of take on certain parenting responsibilities that Annette Benning feels like she can't do. And it's this kind of slice of life movie about all these characters interacting with each other in 1979. And I think it's a beautiful movie about kind of generational conflicts. 
because Mike Mills does such a great job with that movie of having these characters both be in the moment, but also have narration to display like them thinking distantly. Like the Annette Benning character constantly talks about like, you know, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm a person of a different time. Like she tries to go to a punk show with Greta Gerwig and she's like, oh, it's not for me. I don't know if this is really working for me. But even during that punk show, there's narration of Annette Benning saying like, um, it's 1979 and in 20 years I'll die from the lung cancer that is affecting me from these cigarettes. And I will have, I'll miss out on Y2K, miss out on all this other stuff. Um, in my life, I'll never meet my grandkids, stuff like that. There's a, It has such a beautiful thing where it almost feels like these characters are Dr. Manhattan at the same time that they're actual, like, just living beings that are, like, around each other. I think it's such a beautiful movie that has a lot of, like, really funny, personal, intimate moments with these characters, but also does such a great job of sprawling out, like, what, like, the timeline is, basically, of, like, how they have these various different generational conflicts. All the performers are so great. Like, Greta Gerwig is so stellar before she became a director and did her own great stuff with, like, Lady Bird and Little Women. Uh, but Elle Fanning is still phenomenal here. The young kid who plays the the actual son is pretty great. He hasn't done a lot since this, but I think he works really well. Billy Crudup has a supporting role. It's really fun. But Annette Benning, I think, gives the performance her fucking career in this movie. It is such a stellar, wonderful performance. It's really funny, but really sad. So many beautiful moments that you just feel like, fuck, I want you to be my mom. You're so fucking great. <laughs> She's such a great character. Really love that movie. I think very criminally underrated. And I think Mike Mills is a really great director from like this and Come On, Come On are two of my favorite movies from A24 in the last few years. And I think uh, this one deserves a lot more attention, though. And then the other one I have, the bad one, is also from Trey Edward Schultz. It is his most recent film, Waves, which is basically about um, this family that lives in suburbia. Um, they're an all-black family, which is interesting given trade where Chilt is a white guy, kind of trying to talk about a black family who feels like they have Whoa. to kind of live up. <laughs> yeah. Um, has to kind of like live up to the standards of like, oh, we're in the suburban environment and we feel like we have to like, there's more expectation on us and all this other stuff. And it's so conflicting to me because the main character that we follow most for like the first half or so, even a bit more, like the first two thirds of the movie, is uh, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., who was in Comes at Night, and is um, one of the most like both unlikable but also uninteresting protagonists I've ever had to follow in one of these A24 movies, where he's constantly like an asshole to his girlfriend, an asshole to his entire family, treats everybody like shit, is so awful, and basically feels way more like an asshole suburban white teenager written by a white guy and played by a black actor. And it feels like so Uh awful and grating. And I, and and it has like so many like sort of lifetimey twists and turns that happen with these characters that I really fucking hate so much. And then the perspective shifts over to a different character. I won't spoil how that happens or who that person is, but I'll say it gets to be at least a bit more interesting at that point because that character we're following, it's sort of like them dealing with the fallout of the first half of the movie and them kind of trying to rebuild after a certain point from like a lot of the, the horrible stuff that happened in the first half of the movie. And that movie is kind of interesting, has some good performances from like a Taylor Russell, who you might know from the Escape Room movies. I think she's a very underrated up and coming actress. I think she's quite good as Lucas Hedges pops up and he's fun in a lot of these A24 movies. Fucking Sterling K. Brown is as per usual great in this fucking movie. He's so stellar. 
But man, it's one of those movies where like it feels like after so much of the bullshit we dealt with, I don't know if this other half that's kind of enjoyable is worth it at all. It's too little, too fucking late. <laughs> and I think it's part of why I said I think Trey Edward Schultz has become like the guy who does these A twenty four movies, and it feels like it's sort of like him on autopilot. It doesn't feel nearly as sincere as these, a lot of these other people. And Waves is a great example of that. I think it's slightly better. Then it comes at night, um, but not by a lot. Still is one of the worst of the A24 movies for me. I have not seen either of your movies. Um, I do remember there being buzz about 20th century women, especially the Annette Benning of it all. I mean, that's something if I if I can catch it, I'll definitely check it out. I mean, I'll, I'll watch pretty much anything A24 puts out, except for Waves. I don't think I'll be watching that one. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, I I got to be honest, even the trailer for it, I was like, what is this? Like, I, I don't understand. And then, you know, I'm watching, I'm like, okay, it's about the plight of sort of, uh, you know, African-American family in, you know, modern day suburbia. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Wait, who wrote and directed this? <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> like, like, oh no, 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 no. I'm avoiding that one just on principle alone. Like, I, yeah. I don't think I'll ever watch it. It especially comes off weird when the first movie he did, Cretia, which I kind of mentioned earlier, it's that's his best movie. It's kind of interesting. But the thing about that movie is it stars his entire family, his very white family, and Trey is like one of the main characters in the movie. Uh, so to come off from that and then two movies later, like, no, I want to talk about the black experience. Like, Trey, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Buddy, it'd be like me making a movie like, you know what I want to talk about? How bad Hispanic women have it. <laughs> like, oh, no. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> like, I have no clue. Like, I want to know what the fuck I'm doing. And I'm guessing Trey Edward Schultz has no idea what the fuck he's talking about. Uh, that, that is just, what are you, what are you doing, man? What, yep. what the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it, you know, you almost feel like it's a shame Sterling K. Brown even took the part. Because uh, he's great. But then, Look, I, I feel bad for all the black actors in that movie having to take those. Words. They said, well, they did. They have to. They didn't have to. Well, especially Sterling K. Brown really didn't need to. It's like you got this is us, money, yeah, man. Yeah, you dude, you're this. great. You know, just <laughs> fucking, just you're you're awesome, dude. You made me cry watching Black Panther. So <laughs> you know, you you kind of got carte blanche to do whatever. Did you the want. predator hurt you that much? But I don't think it would have hurt you that much. <laughs> I, I hope not. Jesus, but uh. <laughs> Yeah, I have no fucking interest in that movie. In fact, to the point to where I will honestly say, like, you know, whatever we said about it comes at night aside, everything I've kind of heard about Trey Edward Schultz and then even the idea of that film makes me go, I'm never going to watch a Trey Edward Schultz movie again. Wow. Well, let's go ahead and repeat our choices for this, Adam. I had, for my good, The Witch. And for my bad, I had Mojave starring... Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> <laughs> For my good, I had uh, 20th Century Women, and my bad, I had Waves. Well, we want to thank all of you uh, for listening, and stay tuned for the end of the episode where we're going to be doing our picking for next time. Uh, but before that, we have to do some uh, housekeeping, like some thanks for people that help us with the show, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for the artwork. I'll follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. Uh, for so much of his great artwork on Twitter, you can find a link tree to all his stuff. And thanks also to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash pod, where for just a $1 a month, you all get to... Uh, 
listen to bonus audio podcasts we put out, and uh, vote in polls to pick movies that we cover and topics that we cover for an episode, including the particular week this episode is going to be released. You all get to vote in a poll uh, for our upcoming topic in June. You know, it's the summertime. So we figured let's do something related to summer camps. And uh, you all get to pick between us covering summer camp comedies and summer camp horror films. We could go either, you know, the meatballs route or we could go the Friday the 13th route. Whichever way we go. Uh, Just to let you know, though, if we... If the horror gets picked, we're not going Friday the 13th. We've talked to death about that shit. <laughs> I mean, we did one episode. That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> I mean, there's there's other ones. You know, there's sleepaway camps. There's, you know, there's a few others we could talk about. But you all get to decide if we go on the comedy or horror side of things. You all get to vote. And uh, we really appreciate uh, the dollar and the votes. It really helps us out. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Especially not you, Rafe Telsh. <laughs> Consistency. Uh, no, I, I appreciate your dollar, Rafe. Please keep keep doing this. Dollar. I really appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate. You know what? Yeah, I appreciate the dollar, Rafe. I just don't appreciate you. <laughs> of course. And uh, for more of our antics, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And also, uh, you can email us with uh, you know your thoughts and your double redo choices even over at doublehdoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at NotTheWho'sTommy, where I have my own musings. And I also do some writing at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. You can find me on Letterbox at Schwanson. That's S C H W A N D T S O N. And if you really want to touch base, find me on Facebook under my name. Uh, and uh, just mention you listen to the show, and I'll add you, and I will indeed have a conversation with you. To hear our audio conversations, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, if you, you know, like what you're hearing here, you can dig into the archives and our Podbean main feed for the several episodes we did even before we joined Talk Film Society. And if nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, it's totally cool. Money can be tight, but you can be supporting us completely for free by rating, reviewing, or simply sharing the show around because that gets us more visibility. Yeah, please do, guys. We, we've we been doing this now for over four years. We'd love to do it. We love having even one person listen. Uh, but if that one person shares, then that might bring in a second person and so on and so forth. Uh, we don't want to, uh, you know be the biggest thing out there i mean if that happens great but we definitely like doing it we definitely like uh you guys enjoying it so help us out fuckers right because then if you share it to a second person then it's two whole people then why not four and if four whore people why not more you lost me You, you lost me at multiplication oh that's true yes yeah yeah See, uh, A is equal to B squared, and thus that means we get more listeners on the show for Flyhaven. <laughs> I just want people to listen to me talking to my phone. <laughs> of course. But now, Adam, we gotta do our picking for next week's episode, now that we're uh-huh. finally at the end of everything here. And next week, you know, we're going from the little indies of A24 to a big blockbuster, star-driven vehicle of an episode, where we are talking about, finally... Someone who we've wanted to vote an episode to, I think, since like around the beginning oh, of the definitely. show. Yeah, yeah. Was like the, weirdly, the last time that guy released a movie 
Tom Cruise was Mission Impossible Fallout. That's the longest gap we've ever had without a Tom Cruise movie. Oh, is it really? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I guess it would be. Yeah, four years. Because like, like, that dude is such a superstar that he at least made a movie like every two to three years. Like He never really stopped that much. But yeah, because of the pandemic, we weren't able to tie this into Top Gun Maverick until now. Which um, I'm more curious about just as a Tom Cruise movie than I am as a Top Gun sequel. Because I'm not a huge Top Gun guy. I do not care about a Top Gun sequel at all. Because I am also never been a Top Gun guy. But Adam, that trailer though, there's a lot of like, fun. No, no, I trailer. don't care. No, I don't care. <laughs> fun, the funniest thing about that trailer is Miles, Miles Teller's mustache. <laughs> and we've been seeing it for like five years since they first right, put out that forever. fucking trailer. <laughs> now I'm just convinced like anything. Now it's going to be weird to see him without it. <laughs> I just love also, like, I, I can still remember the first time I went back to the theaters was, like, in May of 2021, and the and cup the they gave cups. me <laughs> was, what, for June of 2020? Yeah, buddy. And I loved, like, around that same time, I went to the movies with, like, a friend who was just like, oh, man, did Top Gun come out? It's like, dude, that was 2020. No, no movie came out. Guy at the bar I, I managed came in wearing a Top Gun Maverick hat. Uh, it's, and it said 2020 underneath the logo. And I'm like, oh, well. That's a collector's item at this <laughs> point. Right, 100%. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're going to finally talk about Tom Cruise, who, if nothing else, there's so much fascinating stuff to that career. Uh-huh. So worthy of an episode. And I can't wait to talk about it with uh, I have the two good choices, you have the two bad choices. We've each assigned a number between 1 and 10 for our choices. And the other person will pick, you know, a number, and that gets as close to our good and our bad choice. But keep in mind. There's a certain thing we have here called the Godfather rule, where since uh, the anniversary episode, just last episode, we were given a single veto that we have in our back pocket to use, and we have to use it before next anniversary. So we have a whole year now to have this veto that's bringing a hole in our back pockets used. And um, if one of us hears a choice after picking number between one and ten, and we're like, you know what, I don't want to cover that particular choice, we'll say, actually, I'll take the cannoli. Unless that gets us the alternate choice, the other one, we have to go with no matter what. And that veto is used. So, for example, this happened previously, where Adam used his veto when I had the choice of Cinderella, the 2021 musical, and that led us to covering Me You Madness on our 2021 oh wrap up episode. And then uh, you had the same thing where you had 16 blocks as a choice that I ended up picking, and I decided to veto that. Unless we got 12 monkeys to cover as the good choice for our Bruce Willis episode. Correct. Yes. So. That's on the table here with your two bad choices and my two good choices. So please, Adam, for my good ones, a number between one and ten. I'll go number three. At a number two, I have a movie from a director we've covered recently on the show, but I definitely uh, would say this is my favorite movie of his and a movie I love. Probably Tom Cruise's best performance, along with some other people in the cast. I have Michael Mann's Collateral. Fuck yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. Great, great movie, great movie. On the other side of things, over at number nine, I had another one of, I think, his better, especially like blockbuster movies of recent that wasn't a uh, Mission Impossible film. I have Edge of Tomorrow. Another great fucking movie. I love that movie. That might be my favorite Bill Paxton ever. Oh, God, he's so good in that movie. He's so good. Tip of my spear. Crack of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, we have the good ones settled, but now, Adam... Good choice. I'm so incredibly curious about your bad choices. Mm. I'm going to go, you know, on the opposite end of things, I'm going to go number eight. All right, at number ten, I have a movie that is... uh, I know it made a lot of money. I know it's part of one of the sort of top-earning franchises of all time, but I also think it's one of the worst sequels, especially in this franchise. I have Mission Impossible 2. (gasps) <gasps> oh boy we're gonna be talking some impossible uh, i'm not gonna take the cannoli on that because at the same time i do agree i think it's the worst of those movies that movie is still fascinating it's <laughs> fascinating so many levels yeah, 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 yeah. and then for my alternate choice at number one i had cocktail which is one of his earlier movies it's a terrible film cocktail is just a movie i've pretty much heard about because it's like when i heard the premise like oh they're like bartenders who make cocktails yeah, pretty, pretty much like, why do i care about this yeah, that's so interesting to me yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's terrible all right but mission impossible 2 and collateral nice. that, that'll be a very interesting discussion for next time but until then everybody oh no i got i got black gun coming out of me again it's happening again oh adam do we have to end the episode now nah dude we're about to start recording oh no